Hello and welcome to a very special episode of CBO Speaks. I'm your host, Donna Sheely, and today we're celebrating our 100th CBO Speaks episode. And I am joined by Nakubo President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston and a few very special and distinguished guests from our very first season to see where they are now. So first, we're going to welcome you all, and let's go around and get everyone introduced. Tell us who you are and where you are now. And we're going to start with Bronte Burley-Jones. Good afternoon, Donna. It is great to be here and to be a part of this series. Um, Bronte Burley-Jones, um, I have recently returned to the nest at 4400 Mass Ave. American University, where I am a double alum. Um, so it's delightful to be back uh, in Upper Northwest. Uh, so I've actually just transitioned this last fall. Uh, so in October, um, and as I'm looking at Greg and Gerald, I hit the ground running because that meant I'm jumping right into budget season and everything else. <laughs> um, but indeed, my pleasure to be back here with you today. Thanks, Bronte. And now let's hear from Greg Goldman. Hi, Greg. Hi, thank you, Donna. So great to see everybody. Greg Goldman, I'm Vice Chancellor and Chief Financial Officer at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. And now we'll hear from Gerald Hector. Hi, Donna. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Gerald Hector. I am the Senior Vice President for Administration and Finance here at the University of Central Florida. I just crossed crossed my one-year anniversary, so glad to be here. A lot of sunshine, a lot of warm weather, so I'm happy. That's awesome. Thanks, Gerald. And Susan Wheeler-Johnston, of course, we want to hear from you. Well, thank you, Donna, and thanks to you all for joining us, uh, Greg, Bronte, and Gerald. Um, You all did this well before I joined the Nakubo staff as president and CEO, and I found all of the CBO Speaks episodes to be really worth listening to. So I am delighted to be part of this one and get to hear your answers to our questions um, early. Well, let's get started. Let's talk about where you were when you participated in your first CBO Speaks podcast recording seven years ago and share with us something you're really proud of from that role. And we'll start with you, Bronte. At the time of the first recording, I was at Dickinson College, where I served uh, for eight years. Uh, and one of the things I vividly remember from that session um, were my comments about communication um, and knowing the members of the campus community, right? Gone are the days where the CFO gets to sit in an office with a 10-key adding machine and, and worlds and worlds of spreadsheets and not connect with, with others. Um, so I talked at length about um, knowing the members of my team. So 300 plus members of the team and knowing everyone from the mail delivery person and the frontline servers in the dining hall, clearly to my direct reports. Um, and that seemed to resonate I got more feedback from individuals about um, not seeing the CBO as someone who was a communicator or a member of the broader campus community. And that just seemed to resonate that um, we actually can be engaged in the campus environment. Um, and we'll talk more about it later, but that served me well as we went into the COVID era. Um, and you needed the community to understand who you were, how you came to decision making. And so building those relationships uh, was something that I lifted up um, in that first series. What about you, Greg? 
back when we did this seven years ago, which which is crazy in itself to think about how time flies. Um, I was senior vice president for business affairs and chief financial officer at University of Arizona and had actually just arrived on campus pretty close to when we did this, coinciding with my year as uh, Nukuba board chair. And, you know, I think about that. And, and during that, I talked about listening, kind of the same thing as Bronte did, getting out and, and doing the job by walking, by talking. Um, but what I'm most proud of, it shows how long things can take in higher education. We, we envisioned what we are calling a student success district. We envisioned something that took the science library, the science building, the main library, our old main gym, and put a project through to the regions to create this integrated student success district where it would be a kind of a one-stop shop for students, everything from advising to mentoring to mental health to all the things that are so critical to our students on every one of our campuses, and was instrumental in pushing that forward. And just last year is when they actually did the ribbon cutting on that and actually got it done. And I think it's just important to note that sometimes, you know, we may change institutions, but our legacy uh, where we were kind of lives on. And that's part of what we do is to, to really make the next generation, the next set of leaders even better. So to be able to look back and know that I was part of that was was exciting. Very exciting. All right, Gerald, let's hear from you. Sure. I actually was at Ithaca College in upstate New York. I was the vice president for administration and finance there. Had a wonderful time. That's when I went up into the tundra, so to speak. But it was a good time in Ithaca. And it was a, we had a lot going on. I spent three years there at Ithaca. But it was a time that was rather interesting because we had all of these plans. I, I succeeded someone who was there for like 27 years in the CBO role. So coming in, I had to find a way to figure out who Gerald Hector is in this space. And it was really around engaging the campus, like Bronte just said. So I spent quite a bit of time with the campus in general, uh, students in particular, trying to get a sense of what's happening, their likes, their dislikes. Deans, obviously, were a key part of that. And was me introducing myself. So I think my episode was about direct engagement with the campus. And then we had some, if you all remember the fall of 2015, we all had the issues around Michael Brown and all that. And the the prior summer and then college campuses exploded and we had all these issues. And then that's where I really got into the whole diversity, equity and inclusion aspects So I still looked upon as a unicorn because I'm a chief financial officer who's supposed to oversee finance and administration and operations. But being a CBO of color in that environment um, really opened up a new skill set for me. And to this day, Greg just talked about legacy. But to see other places that I've been since then um, carrying that same message, to see others that were direct reports of mine actually taking it forward to their institution. So I think I said something of value or worth, so to speak. And I I believe that the work of the CBO continues to evolve. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, on that track, what's one thing, and anyone can jump in on this one, what's one thing you're doing now that you never imagined you'd be doing as a CBO? Wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, for me, Given where we were, you know, it's important to note that it was just um, two weeks from now that we closed campus uh, for a lot of us, uh, not not just UCLA. I never thought I'd be counting PPE. I never thought I'd be worrying about her funding. I never thought I would be be worrying about testing and all the things that I think 
know, we are diverse teams, but it shows that every chair, um, every chair from our chair to student affairs to administration was so critical in helping us get through these two years. So uh, for me, it was just the the wear, the tear, um, but also how proud I am of where and how as a campus we got through this from a student standpoint, from a financial standpoint, and from a community standpoint, but never thought we'd be doing any of this. And I think I'll pick up on where, where Greg is, um, and it, because it's also an outpouring of COVID. Um, space utilization for me is is the big one, right? Um, because of the hybrid work environment um, and all that came out of COVID, um, the way we're thinking about space and place. So yes, we've looked at utilization before, but not in the ways that I'm looking at it now in terms of consolidations, hoteling, right? Repurposing spaces, because as we move in towards a more hybrid work environment, um, especially for those positions that are not student facing, how will we think about our spaces? Building buildings is one thing. Renovating a space is another. But literally thinking about, do we need the footprint to be as large as it is? And for us in Upper Northwest, in that prime real estate, um, do I need all the buildings that I have and can I repurpose them in different ways? So just how we're thinking about space and place, um, it is so different than the normal space utilization and moving people around. It really is. Can we consolidate? Can we be smarter about this? Um, because I don't think we're going to put the genie back in the bottle and expect everybody to come back to campus five days a week in all the roles that they previously did. So COVID it, I think is going to have some very um, lingering um, impact on how we do business in the academy. And I'll just chime in. Greg and, and Bronte touched on something that's unique in higher ed in some ways and is germane to what we do. I would just say what I've never thought I'd be working on is I joined UCF in the middle of a pandemic. And inside that pandemic, also, we're going to a new ERP system a new budget system with a new budget model, and we're heading towards some semblance of shared services all at the same time. So all of what Bronte just noted, we're doing that and then some. And as Greg just mentioned, her and the whole um, idea of what's happening with COVID and, and the effects of COVID on our operations and monitoring that and making sure we spend money in the right buckets. It takes a big team effort. So what I say to my staff sometimes is, my job is not only the CFO and overseeing all these things, it's the change management that we're doing right now at UCF, one of the largest institutions in the country. I now have to probably put on my resume cheerleader because I have to find a way to get people to understand that change is, is hard. But at the same time, if I can create the message and the narrative such that they can see two to three years down the road, that's part of my job now as well. And touching on all the things Bronte and Greg said, that's that's what I do now on a daily basis. And we'll be doing this uh, probably in this mode for about four to five years almost. As we move, we, we hear this term all the time, the new normal, but it's actually reality. We do have a new normal. At this time, I'm going to turn it over to Susan, and she has a few questions for you all as well. Yes. Uh, and Gerald, you've given me a new image to think about. Gerald Hector as cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> it's a visual for everyone. Um, yeah, yeah. You all have been talking about uh, already some of the things that I want you to think about for this first question, but it is 
What would you say are the biggest challenges facing higher education today? And I'm not sure there's one answer to this. So I'm, I'm sure I'm going to hear very different things from each of you. And uh, Gerald, the cheerleader, let me start with you. Okay. <laughs> I think what, what has changed and is going to hurt, be in our, in our sphere for a while, I believe, is two things, private or public. Uh, I've been saying over and over again, net tuition revenue will not drive your institution on a prospective basis. So if you're thinking about just getting students into your institution and then uh, covering your expenses from room and board and net tuition revenue, that, that's not going to be enough. So what I keep saying to folks is diversification of revenues is going to be very, very important. And that was something that was kind of a, a thing out there. But COVID, when COVID hit, uh, for years, many of us would have tried to talk about online and talk about moving courses and things like that. The academy was not ready for it. But we have all experienced the swiftness with which that could happen with COVID. So that is one aspect of it. Now, think about all the other assets. Um, Bronte just mentioned space. How do you monetize space? If you collapse space and you have people working remote, how do you tie all that together so you can drive a revenue stream from that as well? And partnerships of purpose. So I think in higher ed today, we're going to have to do a better job of figuring out how do we get alternative sources of revenue, that cliche we have heard for so many years, but now for us, it's real. Um, expense management was always something we had to do. But now, as the rate of inflation is growing the way it is, uh, and our various revenue sources probably keeping pace or below that, we have to become more creative. And it's our jobs as the CBOs to be the ones that I, I, I say, that, remember those old washing machines with the agitators on the inside? That is our job right now as the C CBOs. And that's what's facing higher ed. And we're going to have to embrace it and, quite frankly, become it and solve it. Thank you, Gerald. Bronte, what would you add to that? You know, I, again, I'm going to pick up on COVID because I think COVID is impacting us in such significant ways. Um, nimbleness to alternative methodologies of course delivery. Um, I mean, all of us had to turn on a dime um, a couple of years ago, and, and we really are days away from it having been two years ago that most of us, right, during spring break or just before or after, had to figure out what, um, what, what we thought was going to be a very temporary thing, right, that continues on into the current environment. Um, but as we even thought about this spring semester, are we coming back on time? Are we not coming back on time? Are we going to be um, online? And then there were some requests that as we come back into the classroom, well, can I still come in hybrid? So this, this flex education. Um, and as I said a few moments ago, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And so the idea that we're all going to be coming back into the classroom and be in seats and delivering our coursework, I don't think that's a reality. Um, so I think the demands on technology and our ability to be flexible, which is not what the academy is known for, right? Um, but um, we've, we've introduced the possibility. Right. And so, Gerald, to your point about different revenue streams, how we think about how we deliver um, our education to um, our, our, our students, um, I think all of that's going to be challenged as we go forward. Um, and unfortunately, that's going to require resources. 
Um, so I, I, I do have concern um, for some of our more resource challenged institutions and whether they're going to be responsive to what I think are going to be shifting demands and expectations um, from the students who, are who attend um, our respective um, institutions. Um, and I'll just throw in um, the shifting demographics also have to be on our radar screen because that's going to have its own implications for us. Um, and so a nimbleness in the academy um, that I think is going to be a, cha a challenge for us because that's just not, things don't move fast in the academy, Susan, and, and we all know that. Absolutely right. And, and Greg, what would you add? Great. Thank you. No, very, very good observations. Two things that I, I put around this. One is, I think we have to focus on our relevance. And I think as we look at our world of higher education, however one wants to define it, um, you know, community um, or, or R1 or, or CompDoc, I truly think that there's so many other options out there right now for workforce, for training. Um, I, sit, I sit and listen to um, bundling of credentials, to um, firms that need to hire tens of thousands of programmers. And paying for them to go through kind of boot camps and other ways to get the education. And how do we help our, our, our youth understand that a well-rounded education is going to serve them well through life, not just the dollars of the moment, um, also that college isn't for everybody. So I think relevance is hugely important in an ever-changing world. I think also what's become clear to me through COVID as I've talked to colleagues and done some research is the have and have nots. And I think as we look at coming out the backside of this, um, I can truly say I would not want to be CFO at a number of mid-tier publics or privates right now. And I think, I think we've seen some consolidations. We've seen some closures. I unfortunately think we're going to start to see more of that. And, and unfortunately, it's not going to be from the type of institution that the three of us are at that are joining you today. Unfortunately, it's going to be at institutions that are a lot smaller, maybe a lot more focused on who they serve, where they serve, the demographic they serve. And I think we have an obligation at those that are, might be at the upper end of the spectrum of resource, of ability to react, to, to make sure that the students that those institutions supported, educated, and provided for, those students aren't lost in, in the ethos. They're not lost on the supply chain of what we do. And, and I'm not quite sure how we do that, but I think there's an obligation because those institutions that, that unfortunately may not make it did serve, did serve a population that was critically important. So I just think it's something we have to pay close attention to as we come out of all of this. That's a tough uh, final point for you to end on, Greg. And it's maybe a good um, beginning point for my next question. And, and that is this, Given all the challenges that you all have just mentioned, and I'm sure you could add to that list, is this a good time to be a chief business officer? I would say absolutely. Absolutely. If you are of the mindset that you like to solve problems and that you like to drive change and a change agent and someone that really wants to extend the legacy of an institution, it's a great time to be a CBO. There is so much for, for us to do in this space right now that 10 years ago, I think all three of us have been in these roles more than 10 years. 
the job is totally different. Um, it's such now that not only the, the technical aspects, yes, you have to have those things, but the ability to develop strategy, the, the ability to execute on strategy, the ability to look at ways that you can take the institution from one place to another, following a strategic plan from a president and a board, those things excite me, and I'm pretty sure my colleagues here on the call as well, that's why we do what we do, is that I, I tell people all the time, why are you in higher education? I'm in higher education because it's the intersection of where my core and my passion lies. My core at its very being is equality, justice, and quite frankly, seeing everyone move to different stations in life. And my passion is accounting and finance. So the two intersect, and the best place they intersect is in higher education. Because I get to see these freshmen come to college and university. They know everything. And then four years later, they're walking across the stage with tears in their eyes. And you ask them, why are you crying? You know, the only answer is that they grew up in four years. Our job is to grow them up, kick them out, and let them become the social entrepreneurs that they should be. And that's what excites me about being a CBO on a campus, helping to create the next generation of leaders. So to be a CBO today, oh my goodness. To me, it's, it's worth it more and then some. And, and I couldn't echo what Gerald just said more. We see the university campus um, in a way that most others don't, right? Because we have to look across the full landscape and understand all that we're trying to achieve, right? And then how to allocate the resources to make those goals, ambitions, and dreams a reality. And so the ability to be a part of that change, to be a problem solver, to be strategic, um, if that's something that appeals to you, this is the most amazing time to be sitting in, in these chairs. But we've got to be willing to get out and connect and communicate with all of the stakeholders, right? Because everyone has something to contribute to the conversation, but the landscape upon which we see the institution is really unlike any other. Um, and so if you enjoy problem solving, if you want to leave a legacy, um, and I, I'd like you, Gerald, I come to the academy because I like to see our students grow, thrive, and then go out into the world. Um, and so I can't think of a better job um, or career at this at this moment in time, because I think it's COVID is going to really impact the academy and having a seat at the table and playing a critical role right now, I think is is everything. Greg? Yeah, no, I, I couldn't, uh, couldn't agree more with, with what you both said. I think, you know, I like to frame it that we're changing the world one student at a time. And the reality is that, you know, why do I love this world? Why do I love commencement? Sitting on stage and seeing the students walk across and realizing that could be our next senator, that could be our next president, that could be the person that 20 years from now, 100 years from now in the next pandemic solves the issue around the vaccine. You know, we all, we all could for sure be doing other things. We're all running large companies. We're all running large cities. I think the reality is why is this so special is because we can, we can, as Gerald said, our values, our ethics, where they align, where the rubber meets the road and can have impact in ways that, you know, I like to say we're not doing the science, but if we're doing our business right, the science is even better. We're not in the classroom teaching the students 
But but certainly, if we're doing what we do around technology, around infrastructure, around facility, the students are learning better. You know, we're not running the dorms, but certainly we're creating the environment for them to grow as human beings, as people. So to me, there is nothing more noble than what we do. Um, and and certainly, I could not I could not have thought twenty years from now that I'd be sitting on this podcast doing what I'm doing. Uh, and, and, and I sit and look back and the challenge is, I think, how we help the next generation of us, the next generation of those, the compelling, truly proposition, business proposition, life proposition to dedicate oneself to changing the world one student at a time. Well said, Greg. Boy, that sure is. So, I've got a question now. I've got two versions of it, and each version has a different audience. So the audience for this first question is current chief business officers. What one piece of advice do you have for those who are currently, they have the job that you have? And what, what would you say to them? And Bronte, let me start with you. Yeah, I would say um, networking. Um, Nakubo is a wonderful resource for that. Um, and I can think of each one of the institutions where I have served um, and the, the, the natural networks that came out of it. Um, so Gerald and I actually have known each other since we were both first in our first CFO roles. That's right. That's right. Um, and we were working for UNCF related institutions. And so the CFOs came together there. I worked in Texas um, and the private CFOs came together. Same thing happened in Maryland with the private institutions in Pennsylvania. It was uh, F&M and Gettysburg. I mean, you, you know the group of people, but it's getting outside of your organization and making those networks because you can spend 15 or 20 minutes. Um, let's be real here. It turns into more like two or three hours with your CFO colleagues because you can talk to one another about the challenges within the academy in ways that you can't talk to your other campus colleagues, Right. And so the, the exchange of ideas um, and, and just the, 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 the thinking through problems, get outside of your institution and network with, with others would be, would be my advice. Great. Thanks, Greg. What about you? You know, I think uh, same, same kind of direction on that is that, that realize that we're not in this alone. I think sometime, sometimes in these chairs, uh, particularly after this last two years, you know, we're creating, we're solving um, a thousand problems a day. And, and our job is to make it better for everybody else and to work with the presidents and chancellors, to work with our provosts and other leadership on campus. And I think sometimes we forget to take care of ourselves in that process. And I think just, just as was said, it's the network around, it's picking up the phone, it's calling colleagues, it's, it's doing Zoom, it's getting back to in-person. Um, I think I think we have not realized the burden this has put on all of us over these last two years. And I think we are all coming out the backside of this. So I think it's be strong, create that network, find those feel goods. Remember that whatever you're doing today will be there tomorrow. And and, you know, I don't practice what I preach. I try hard and fail miserably. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's you know, turn off that Zoom at eight o'clock at night. Go spend time with family. Go spend time with a book, or go spend time with just some crazy uh, television show. 
but get away from it because we're going to serve our presidents and our chancellors better if we do, because we'll be better people and a little more rested. <laughs> Good advice. Carol. I would say two things. One is uh, Bronte and Greg said it best around the networking, getting out on the campus, building those collaborative uh, networks, if you will. I'll, I'll say, and Greg kind of alluded to this, but I'll just say it this way. Be humble and be vulnerable. Humility will take you a long way in these seats. It's when you come at it thinking that you know everything, and that's where Greg and Bronte was getting at it. You're never going to know everything about this, this role. Uh, if we were to just to look at how trying to spend HERF money the past two years, that alone, that was so confusing. And, you know, every you feel confident that you got the right thing and someone says something to you, you're thrown off. So it's be humble, be humble. And the second one is to be vulnerable. Vulnerable meaning that to what Greg said, these last two years have been rough on people. And if you think about people in air quotes, people includes us. Mm-hmm. But we are sitting in seats where oftentimes it looks like we're giving directives because of the title and position that we hold. We have to be in a mode now where we are touching heart to heart with the people that are looking up to us. That, hey, listen, Mr. Hector gets tired too. So Mr. Hector goes running every morning or he lifts weights every morning. He, he reads, he tries to play golf, he tries to do something to give them some sense that you can't run 14, 12 to 14 hour days every day and think that you're going to be productive. And as leaders, we have to be mindful of that. We have to exercise that empathy. And the best way for you to exercise empathy is for you to show it but also live it. So when people see you as an authentic leader, that helps because as I've told people before, if you're leading and nobody's following, you're just out for a walk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent point. Now let's change the audience just a little bit. Um, change it from those who currently are chief business officers to those who think they might want to become a chief business officer. And what one piece of advice do you have for that group, the people who might want to have your jobs in the future? You know, to, to take a, a famous sports quote, just do it. Um, I think, I think there, is, there is no better place to be large, small, public, private, community, wherever you find your passion, our world desperately needs strong, thoughtful, kind, caring, compassionate leaders. And, and uh, I, I think uh, more than anything, we need people to see that, that this is a way to change the world truly, as we talked about earlier in our discussion. So to me, it's, it's don't think about it, just do it. Find a mentor, find somebody on your campus, reach out to the CBO. You may not know them, I guarantee you. Um, they will want to help you figure out the path there. So I encourage everyone who wants to do it to just do it, to find the road there, to find the career path there and to be the next us's and really a chance to take, take the legacy even further. You know, I like that. I like what you said about don't overthink it, just do it. Because a lot of people will overthink this and time passes and uh, you, you may miss an opportunity. Gerald, what would you say? I think Greg said it, said it, said it quite well. There, there's a, 
I, I you know those of you that are on Instagram, there's this thing that pops up and they have these audio clips that says, don't be mad of the results that you gain for the work that you didn't do. So in order to get in these chairs, you have to do some work. And that work means, Bronte said it earlier, you have to network. Um, the CBO role is not just finances. You have to figure out how can I be exposed to facilities, to campus safety, to auxiliaries, business services, um, economic development, all of these things that we are responsible for in some way, shape, or form. You're going to have to find ways to get your feet wet. And the way to do that is to grow networks, uh, be bold. Don't be afraid if someone, for someone to tell you no. I have been told no more than I have <laughs> want to even admit. But it's funny, as you go through that process, because even as a CBO, you're going to get rejected a number of times. So you might as well get used to it. But it's things like that, that you have to get your proficiencies in almost every sphere that this job calls for. You're going to have to find ways to immerse yourself in it formally and informally uh, and active learning, continuous learning, be someone that's hungry for knowledge and, you know, go for it. Uh, Greg said it best, just do it. Thank you very much. Donna, I'm going to turn it back to you at this point. Okay. Well, it sounds good. I'm so enjoying this conversation, but before we close, I'd like to hear some Nakubo memories. Each of you has done so much with Nakubo, so it might be difficult, of course, to narrow it down to just one story, but I'd love to hear about your favorite thing that you've done with Nakubo, um, your best experience getting involved, or just anything you'd like to share about your time as a Nakubo member so far. We'll start with you, Bronte. So, um, Donna, I would go back to one of my very first um, Nakubo meetings. Um, I was attending one of the women's affinity group um, meetings, um, and I had the great honor of sitting next to Lucy Lepofsky. Um, and that's a name in this um, in our sector, let's just say. Um, and I had no idea as to who Lucy was at the time, but I was new to St. John's and she happened to know the people that I was working at, working with at St. John's because she had been at Goucher. And it turned into the most wonderful conversation. And she said what a lot of people will say to you, here's my information, stay in touch. Um, and this is a word of advice. When someone says that to you, stay in touch. Okay, because I, in fact, did stay in touch with Lucy um, and Lucy brought me into some reviews with her at Middle States and then with hers. And she went on to be a very valuable mentor for me. Um, and I, and I, I credit a lot of things that happened in my career and my journey to Lucy. But that also fed um, my involvement um, with the fellows program and mentoring and making myself available. She made herself available to me and I understood how invaluable that's been um, for me. So it's been my honor to work with the fellows program and to watch um, aspiring CBOs actually transition into those roles. They're going for the interview. They call you, they get the job, they call you. Um, and then when they're first trying to get their feet wet. Um, so, um, that mentoring. So having been the recipient of mentoring and now being in that role. role. Um, and, and this morning, I, I, I put this on my Facebook um, um, post, um, a quote, um, when you arrive at the door, 
don't close the door, hold it open and show others how to get there. And so that's something that I would attribute to my, my experiences with Nakubo. Awesome. Awesome. Greg, what about you? So many wonderful experiences over, over the decades of involvement. Um, what I think the greatest are is around the annual meeting and honestly around the service project that usually is tied to an annual meeting. So here is you know, a group of 3,000 CFOs, business types, converging into a city. Uh, pick any city where it happens to be, Tampa, um, different ones. And I think about the service projects, and I think about the few hundred people of our colleagues that, that participate in this, uh, the sweat, the dirt, the grime, um, the community building, but more importantly, leaving an impact in the city we're in. But then I think about the fun of it, and I think back to one, and I actually think it was Tampa, where we were putting together IKEA furniture. And there's nothing more fun than some really bright, intelligent business officers struggling to read schematics because, of course, we have to put things together before we read the directions because that's what we do best. So it's, it's, that, it's that bonding. It's the, the networking. As Bronte said, it's, it's, it's having the mentors. It's also a chance to really mentor. I think, about, I think about when I was board chair in Montreal and being able to speak to 3,000 people about what was important to them, how I got there. And I think, I think for me, the Nakuba memories are always going to be about the people. It's going to be about the industry. And it's going to be about helping that next generation. We've talked about it so much throughout this, this podcast, but truly we need that next generation. We need the us's to start going to the annual meeting. We need to make it engaging. I compliment Susan on the one that we did get to have in Austin before, before everything changed of how we're trying to change the meeting for that next generation. It's not about us anymore. We're going to do our time. We're going to have an impact. It's about that next generation getting those Nakubo memories, getting that IKEA moment, whatever it may be from their way. Awesome. And Gerald? Mine is really two, and that that has helped me tremendously. And the first one is serving on the R1 Institutions Council. I served on that for, I believe, two two go-rounds. So you get to meet people, Laura Hubbard and and folks like that, brilliant-minded people, if you will. And the other one I would say is the new business officer, being a faculty member for that program, I think I had more fun in those presentations that I gave as a faculty member for new business officers than anything else that I've done. So when you tie it all together, Ronte said it at the very beginning, what Nakubo brings for me is I can pick up my phone now and hold it up on this Zoom call and the number of people that are in my phone that any issue that I have I don't care if it's an Ivy League issue from my time at Cornell or my time at Ithaca College, a mid-sized, mid-level institution, or HBCU in Morehouse or Johnson C. Smith. I can pick up the phone and call someone, and they can actually relate to the issues that I'm, 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 I'm addressing. So now I'm at a big public, one of the largest, I said, in the nation. But at the same time, all of these relationships I can call upon, this whole hearth thing that we've all been struggling with. I've been on the phone with so many people over the last two years. It's amazing. And everybody is so welcoming. 
It's not that you, you send a text or you send an email, they respond almost instantaneously. It's almost like Nakubo has brought for us this extended family that is geared towards making you successful. So as Greg said, if, if you're not involved as a CBO now, you need to get involved, serve on committees, be it Iakubo, Sakubo, Wakubo, Nakubo in general, um, just serve. And I promise you, it will come back to you tenfold. And of course, we need to hear from our president and CEO of Nakubo. Susan, please answer that. And when you follow that with um, some final remarks. It's interesting to hear you all talk about your experience with Nakubo as an experience with family. My experience coming to Nakubo for the first time, and Greg, I can't remember if you were going out as chair or I know you were there because it was John Walda's last meeting. And I had never been to an Akubo meeting before, but I'd been to a lot of higher education annual conferences, and they all have a spirit or a, a feeling. The feeling of an Akubo annual meeting to me is a cross between a family reunion and a revival. It's just such energy, and people are so happy to see each other. And that comes from the year over year. Uh, meeting over meeting connections that people make with their networking, with their mentoring, with their shared experiences, with the programs, with the ability that you all have mentioned to pick up the phone and call and get an answer or just some time with somebody to talk about what's going on, you know, is, is a remarkable feature, I think, a remarkable feature of Nakubo. The, one other thing that I think is a remarkable feature of Nakubo is these three people. These three people are so wonderful at representing the kind of good and important high-level work that needs to be done in higher education at, through the business office. Everybody's talking about the students. Uh, Greg, when you started by talking about the Student Success Center, I think it was, I thought this is exactly right for us to understand how to use the resources of the institution, however large or small it is, to help students be successful in becoming, Hector, what you said is the, the entrepreneur that they need to become, for them to be able to give back, as Bronte's doing, to her own institution by returning to provide the leadership there. It's just remarkable to me. But I know that you're just three of many, many other people who do the same kind of work. And so I'm just grateful to you all for representing the, the grit and the resilience, the empathy, the caring that, uh, and the talent that, uh, we all need the chief business officers in higher education to demonstrate. Thank you very, very much. Pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. What a wonderful conversation. Well, I certainly want to thank all of our special guests for this 100th anniversary special of the CBO Speaks podcast. And we want to thank you, our listeners, for being with us for all these years as well. You can find out more about today's podcast by visiting podcasts on nakubo.org under professional development. Then click online education. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks on Apple Podcasts so that you can get the latest episodes 
episodes instantly. And on behalf of Greg Goldman, Gerald Hector, Bronte Burley-Jones, and our president, Susan Wheeler-Johnston, I want to thank you for joining us for this special episode of CBO Speaks. Be well. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Susan Wheeler Johnston, President and CEO of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools, at nakubo.org. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Mm-hmm.